If you think that writing code gives you job security, that's also not the case. Welcome to Tech Talks, the podcast brought to you by Nash Squared and hosted by myself, David Savage, that's been bringing you the latest thinking from technology leaders for over eight years. Joining me on today's show, we've got Akish. How are you today? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. It is getting near enough five o'clock here in the UK, and as I look out my window, I still see blue skies. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. the weather is changing. I think there are a few... A few buds on the trees, even. They are. I mean, I can't see trees from from up here, but I'm going to take your word for it. You know, you do live in the Garden of England, Dave. So, uh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, if there were going to be buds anywhere in the UK, it's probably going to be down here. Correct. Correct. Uh, what do you make of Meta's uh, announcement that you can now pay for a blue tick on Instagram for eleven ninety nine? A month i've heard is uh yeah. you know so that is coming in cheaper than my uh it's coming in cheaper than my netflix subscription i think um what, what's your point that, that you don't think it's a lot of money and therefore you're going to do it yeah at a quiche official i mean i don't know but i think i'll look like a app but, but the thing is i, I was, it, it got sent into uh it got sent into a whatsapp group earlier on but if any of my friends got themselves verified by paying for it Pfft, i don't know i just think it's i had the radio on when it came on and my initial reaction was oh god mm. really mm. like who on earth is gonna pay for a blue tick and then they started talking about that they were doing it slightly differently to the way that twitter were doing it in as much as they were kind of aiming it as businesses where there's been a lot of co- copycat accounts because you have to like verify that you are that person. Yeah. It's a way of yeah. saying you are a, like protecting a brand's um, st- yeah. brand's yeah. equity, I suppose, on, on the market. Which I, in those terms, like okay, fair enough. And like, if you are someone who's an influencer, mm. and I, you I, want to make sure that someone's not kind of just copycatting you, which does happen a lot. Like, yeah. one of our colleagues up in Manchester um, just this week. Um, suddenly another account started following me and and all of a sudden there was a message from her being like this is not me how weird are some people type thing Mm. Um, yeah you know I I, I do think that I I think it's good because I I follow a few businesses like I mean you know me pretty well right so you know I'm into my sort of cars and and watches and stuff Mm. and I follow a couple of competition businesses whereby you know you buy a ticket or two tickets a month something like that it's a gamble right but um and you can win yourself a nice watch or a or a nice car, right? Have I won anything? No. But what I'm trying to say is they always are putting out stuff on their story saying, look, you know, this is another account that set themselves up and, you know, is, is fake. Don't pay them. Don't register with them, that sort of thing. So I get yeah. it from that perspective. But what I think will end up happening on a large scale is any normal Tom, Dick and Harry just going to be like, oh, I want to get verified and look all cool. And you're gonna... but it won't look cool if that's the case. Like I get yeah. from an e-commerce from a from a marketplace point of view, like we're saying, or it's business. Okay, fine. Yeah. I can kind of understand. But yeah, you or me suddenly getting verified. Yeah. Just look like yeah. knobs. With 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 also um 
well, I, I know your your profile's probably not private, but mine is. But you know, private profile just sat there with a blue tick playing at eleven ninety nine. I'm I'm good, thank you. Um, <laughs> but you know, I'm, it's another great way for them to generate revenue. You know, who would have thought it? And also, Absolutely. those people that you know have literally strived for years. I've got I've got a couple of friends, and I'm, I know you've got links um, that are verified, right, in the organic way, and. You know, I know that they spent years and years of, you know, trying to get themselves. They're going to be pissed off. They're gonna, he, he is, he's already messaged me because he only got verified, I think, in November, maybe, December. And, yeah. you know, he was finally like, yes, you know, like, because he was on all these like podcasts and news and, you know, things like that. And, and he's finally got verified. And now he he's already very pissed off because he's like, shit, this is annoying. Um but takes away that slight gloss yeah anyway we'd, we'd love to know what people think um are we are, are we are we gonna get one what tech talks yeah we, we tech talks blue tick tech talks uh. no I don't, I don't think so <laughs> i don't think we're newsworthy <laughs> <laughs> if anyone if anyone wants to pay for us to be verified you know we're more than happy to uh you know accept donations on to our first interview today. We've got two to bring you. Um, first of all, we're going to be talking about data with Sadesh Nair, CEO of ThoughtSpot. And then later in the show, we're going to be talking about flying cars. I'm joined by Sadesh Nair, CEO of ThoughtSpot, someone that I was lucky enough to meet in Lisbon and who has just taunted me with the view out of their window uh, in California. How are you? <laughs> I am doing very well, Dave. This is, a, this is a privilege and I'm happy to talk to you again. <laughs> How's your day going or starting anyway? We are just getting started. We had a Christmas party this uh, weekend. So it was nice to see the team members and their family members after three and a half years of uh, sitting at home and not doing these parties. So I used to hate office Christmas parties, to be honest. This time I really enjoyed it. Well, that's good. I mean, that's, I suppose that's one of the byproducts of the pandemic is that actually getting in front of people feels like something to be cherished again, right? That is true, actually. We start... Uh, hating people less after the pandemic we started realizing that you know it makes sense to meet people and like people hmm, absolutely well look um before we get into anything else whilst we did do a brief interview with you in in portugal and we put that on our on our tech talks extra platform for many of our listeners this will be the first time that they've heard from you and of you uh so who are you who who are thought spot and, and as ceo uh what are your day-to-day -day duties there yeah so my name is Sudhish. I am uh, the CEO of a company called ThoughtSpot. We are a nine-year-old company, almost 10 years now. Uh, we were started by people from Google uh, with a simple idea that we need to make the world more fact-driven. Now, the question is, why should we? Because uh, isn't Google already doing that? Yes, Google is doing a really good job of uh, finding opinions and words and text that are written by others and then sorting it out for you and moving it uh, in front of you when you need to hear, when you search for something. Obviously, they put their thumb on the scale with respect to advertisers and ranking and all of that, but that is how we make our uh, life uh, work, whether finding a restaurant or going a direction. Um, what we don't have uh, is a similar entity for uh, business language. And what I mean by that, the language of business is uh, numbers. We talk in numbers and, and hopefully in facts. And unlike Google, uh, a, a Google for numbers would require a lot more work. 
in the sense that primarily you have to have one answer. Google can throw up hundreds of thousands, if not millions or billions of answers and rank them. If you are looking for how many people watch my podcast or listen to my podcast last week, I can't show you billion answers. I can show you two answers. I have to show you one and it has to be precise. Number two, often when you are presented with an answer in the world of facts and numbers, there will be follow-on questions. So for example, if the number of people watched were 10% lower than, fewer than what your last podcast edition, then you probably will have questions. Why? What happened? So a system like this should also answer those questions. So ThoughtSpot uh, is built with that in mind. How do we make the world more fact-driven in a way that uh, make data accessible for uh, everyone who needs to have insight to drive some meaningful action for their users and customers? I suppose the, the initial question around all of this is how easy is it for customers who are not familiar with the language of data and i know within technology data data is the new the new kind of oil it's 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 incredibly important to a lot of organizations but there are still i suppose um people who are adopting these technologies who are building data machines for the first time who this is they know that they need to invest but they might not understand it how how much of a challenge is it for them to trust data Look, I think the, the thing is um, we as an industry, in technology industry, have this habit of uh, taking everything and t- turning it up at 11 and turning it to a fad. You know, AI was uh, a fad before uh, it became anything real. And data is the new oil thing. It's also becoming more of a fad. The reality is it is true that we are uh, collecting more data and creating more data. You know, the world has 8 billion people now. We've just crossed 8 billion. Uh, We are creating more data by walking around with our mobile phones. 5G is making it easy to send it to a place. Cloud is making it easy to process it. So, yes, we are all drowning in data. Just before this podcast, we were talking about the World Cup. Uh, And I was going to come to that because I I think this is is a really interesting... Go on, because I I, I did have a question that that sprung up in my mind. I would love to hear I want to hear from you. <laughs> well, look, you, you brought up the example of the sensor in the ball. And yeah. I said, ah, well, you know, every, you, you said there's, there's data in the, in, in the World Cup and, and no one really thinks about it. And then there was that moment, of course, where there was a Japanese goal against Spain where all of a sudden data was being talked about. And I thought this was a, this was a really nice analogy because on the British TV coverage, which I appreciate you won't have seen, the conversation was, why haven't FIFA shown us the data? So there was a sensor in the ball the sensor and the, and, and the analytics said the ball was in. But people who were relying on the data and weren't used to relying on data were openly questioning it because they hadn't seen the evidence. They couldn't understand it. And I suppose there's an element in business where it's you're asking people to trust data to make highly complex decisions. And they might not be people who are used to talking about data. And their reaction, their gut reaction might be, I need to see the evidence. Sure, data's telling me the answer, but I don't, I don't believe it until I see it. See, that is, uh, that's the point that I was driving towards in the sense that uh, what, first you have to understand the language of data. And most people are not capable of understanding the language of data. Let me explain that in this context of this uh, football match. So this uh, World Cup, every 
ball has a sensor, which is understandable. But at any point in any point in time, a player is measured on 29 points in their, uh, including their head, their elbows, your knees, your toes, all of that, and 500 times a second. And that is the level of uh, data capture that is happening. And then it is being fed to a neural net for it to make sense of a player is offside when the ball was kicked. This is extremely complex. Now, what they are doing in stadium is that every time an offside is called, they are showing that output in a visually appealing format with the line that clearly shows that this person's toe was one millimeter ahead of the defender and thus the ball was actually offside. You have to trust the system. Obviously, trusting FIFA is a stretch. I know that with their history. But at least in this case, the technology is bringing the output to you. In a simple, you know, if I were to use a simpler example, if you were to go uh, searching for uh, to buy a diamond for a ring that you want to give to your wife or a girlfriend or a significant other, yes, you would want to know the, where this diamond came from. Is it a blood diamond? Is it something that is ethically mined? Uh, but are you really interested in the process of mining? Like, what sort of equipment was used? You know, how did it? Uh, how what was the cutting process? What was the polishing process? Not really, unless you are a geek who's into mining of diamond. You want to know that this is a, not a stolen diamond. This is something that is ethically acquired and uh, I'm, I'm paying a fair value and then I probably want to know what the quality, the cut, the color and all the clarity, all of that stuff. That is the level of simplification that we have to bring. So if you think about in the world of data and when we talk about data is the new oil and all of that, what we are missing sometimes is data is useless unless it is driving a, a bespoke action, a delightful action. So in this case, knowing that Japan's goal is legit. That's the insight. So in the process, this becomes even more important in, in, in the world that we are currently living in where the, the, the amount of data is exponentially increasing. So instead of looking at data and say, I need to get into the data, I need to start figuring out the process through which data becomes action. And in a simple format, data becomes action when it gets uh, uh, when it get processed into uh, insights and that insight applied to knowledge and the knowledge drives an action. So to me, the, 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 the pipeline of data to action is data, insight, knowledge, action. We need people who are geeky about data to focus on data to insight, people who are human-centric, experience-centric to focus on insight to uh, knowledge, and then the consumer, the one who's looking to enjoy the game to focus on that knowledge to action part. That is the referee who is involved in this process. This is not computers directly making a decision and saying it's a goal. It's that when my referee is running to that uh, VR screen and looking at it and coming back and saying it's a penalty, it's an offside, I'm not just trusting the data. I'm also trusting the human experience of it because this expert went in there, assisted, used the data and came back and made a decision. And I think that is an extremely important point. When you go take data to insight, that's a left brain process. It's all about number crunching and neural net. But when insight becomes knowledge, what happens is that insight is imbibed by an expert human 
who is hopefully better than I am in terms of understanding the game. And then he or she made the decision. And that is why I trust it. So you cannot miss one step in this new world, data, insight, knowledge, action. It is important to have the left brain of data becoming insight through machine, but it is equally important on the right brain for human experience to apply that insight to drive an action. So that's the new world we are living in, and it's even more important now, because like I said, everybody is creating uh, you know, terabytes and terabytes of data every second now. And this data is impacting the way that we work, is impacting the world that we live in. There are question marks around the future of the workforce, um, we have question marks, obviously, around bias and ethics. As we get into a situation where organisations are relying on data to make complex decisions for them because of the sheer weight of data, what do you think are the questions that the leaders of those organisations need to be asking? Because there are there are all sorts of areas that they could that they could focus on, and it could be they're worried about their workforce's reaction and the questions, and can they answer them? They're worried about it, are the are the answers they're getting right because are the questions that they're asking right because of bias, and obviously the ethical point. What do you think leaders should be asking themselves at this moment? First, uh, there has to be a recognition, David, about the amount of uh, things that you can do and the things you cannot do. So what I mean by that is you can't turn the clock back here in the sense that you can't say that I'm not going to collect data. Users want the data that they are generating to be used by this company to understand them and deliver personalized experiences. If I am going from point A to point B, I want you to know exactly what my likes and dislikes are. Ten years ago, I may print out a map quest direction that says, uh, here is how you drive to go from where I am, Mountain View, to San Francisco. Today, I don't print out any turn-by-turn direction because I might change my mind. I might drive 15 minutes and decide to go for a cup of coffee. And then when I come a cup of coffee, the traffic has changed and I may want to be rerouted. So my route from point A to point B is probably going to be different from your route based on your likes and dislikes. So that is important to understand. The data we are creating is not just for the sake of it. It's not to keep companies like ThoughtSpot in business. We are creating this data to deliver bespoke experiences. So hopefully the 8.1 billion people in the earth, they all can have uh, bespoke, hyper-personalized experiences. So they feel like this business gets me as a person, not as a number. So that is important to understand. The data is useful and there will be more and more of it. If you accept that, the important thing that as part of it, you cannot process this data through people, which means that you have to apply machine learning to it. Machine learning means you know artificial intelligence in the sense that you will apply machine learning at mass, which means that there will be three problems that come up, like you said. The first one is uh, bias. The data that we are uh, using to train these uh, models are almost all coming from a very small set of uh, people. Uh, most of it is from Western Hemisphere, most of from really highly educated colleges and universities and some of the largest tech companies. And when you boil it all down, it is very clear that as much as we like to see the world become more diverse, it is not that diverse, at least in the way of thinking. They've probably all gone through 20 universities sometimes, right? So their uh, 
behaviors, their decision-making, their life experience, their financial background, where they live, where their kids are, where their parents were, all of those things have uh, more in common than different, which means that you cannot avoid biases. So if you are a business that is serving a very specific set of customers, it is important to understand what the diversity quotient for your customers are and then forcefully manage the biases on the data set that you are dealing with to deliver services. So if you are a banking company doing insurance for a risk assessment for a, a, a small subset in New York City, you may want to understand whether the data set that I am using to make decision generally applies to the consumer set that I'm living with. So that is number one. It is a hard problem. Uh, at least being aware of it will actually help. Uh, solutions are not, uh, you know, hardcore yet. The second is ethics. Uh, we are uh, currently living in a world where, uh, you know, at least there are three or four hotbed issues are going on. Uh, going on in Iran, there is a huge uh, protest movement happening. Uh, China, there is COVID uh, thing going in in Europe, uh, the war, land war for the first time in 50 years going on. And then in the U.S., obviously, uh, multiple issues, but one of them being this gun issue, constitution versus uh, school shooting and all of that. All of these things have uh, uh, ethical implications. Uh, are, uh, you know, who should have access to data when people are giving you the data? Even a simpler thing, for example, when Twitter was an independent public company, uh, General Motors were advertising, one of the largest advertisers there. Today it is uh, acquired by Elon Musk, who also runs uh, Tesla, one of the larger uh, car companies. Uh, GM is uh, rightfully so concerned that if I were to advertise it, how would I not know that if anyone clicks on a Chevy Bolt, that imprint will not be sold to Tesla. That is an ethical thing from a business context, but it could be a government asking for a protest movement to be suppressed. It could be racial profiling for a different country. This one is hard. This one requires trust in government, trust in people, trust in regulation. Those three things are absolutely not in favor of younger generation. If you talk to younger people, they are condescending sometimes. It is sometimes... uh, you know, laughed upon, people don't vote, people are apathetic when it comes to social system. But if you want to make massive changes that are good for common people, politics is something you have to do. So I do think that the second problem around ethics will require significantly more uh, heavy lifting, particularly from younger generation. Uh, I, 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 you know, yesterday I read that in Iran, they are getting rid of the, uh, the, police that is responsible for uh, this sort of uh, moral uh, you know standards and there is a rumor that they might even get rid of the requirement for women to wear headgear changes like that are happening because people are coming together so the yin yang of uh, ethics using mass massive amount of data and collected with that and the last one is job displacement it used to be that uh, uh, Tech people were talking about self-driving car will get rid of the blue-collar job of driving taxis. Now, OpenAI just released ChatGPT, and uh, if you look at what Microsoft does for uh, Copilot, uh, it's really possible for us to write an essay about Genghis Khan within a matter of a second, and that could be a PhD thesis very soon. Uh, the, if you think that writing code gives you job security, that's also not the case. You can actually write code and then find ha- you know security vulnerabilities within the code through AI very soon, and then fix those within code too. 
Now, is it fair for us to say that uh, AI coming after the job is a bad thing? Not necessarily. Take a country like Japan. 30%, more than one-third of the population is above the age of 65, if I'm not completely wrong, which means that this aging population in Japan will require services, healthcare, elderly care, driving, support, grocery shopping. Someone has to do that. So there are, there, are, there are possibilities that this job displacement and automation through machine learning, uh, delivery services, healthcare, things like that will help a population like that in Japan. And very soon, China is going down the same curve because of their social engineering. A 1.3 billion people country where the population is aging faster and young, uh, having less, fewer kids. So all these three buckets that we talked about, uh, the biases, the ethics and job displacement, all three are double-edged sword. What the what we need is careful thinking, and then it's, inter- uh, it's interesting that you talk about the the younger generation, Gen Gen Z, Gen Alpha, I suppose, are going to be coming coming through in the next couple of years. What impact are their attitudes having on this? Because because you kind of touched on it. I mean, when you think about explainability of AI, and and the ability to to be transparent. And and question what goes on inside the black box. That I suppose would be something that that generation, as you've described, might have question marks about. They have question marks about fairness and transparency generally in in the other aspects of of public life, like you've questioned. And if large decisions are being made that they can't explain, are, are people coming into the industry and where you've got a skills shortage, you're looking to to, to bring through a new generation of talent? Are they more alive to these issues than perhaps we were 10 years ago when, when machine learning was first being implemented? Is there a, a maturing of the thinking around this, of people coming into the industry and, and some of the challenges that we have to solve as, as an industry? I am uh, a lot more optimistic about the world and uh, the future because of uh, the younger generation. I do think that it has always been the case that the next generation has always done better for the world. And and I don't think Gen Z or uh, Alpha is going to be an exception. They are growing up faster, smarter, and better. Uh, They are a lot more conscious about uh, inclusion, uh, women's rights, uh, global warming, uh, you know, ethics. They They are thinking, talking, writing about things like these at a much younger age than uh, the generations, uh, you know, before millennials or Gen Xs or baby boomers. And that actually is a good thing. The thing is, though, there is this uh, joke that says, you know, at least in the U.S., that you are not, you don't have a heart if you are not a liberal when you are young, and you don't have a brain if you are not a conservative by the time you're old. I hope that uh, uh, the idea of, the hard line between what defines a conservative and a liberal, at least in the context of U.S. Uh, politics, will change in the sense that uh, it is uh, the world has proven that uh, work matters, uh, freedom matters, the ability to innovate, uh, the capitalism and its work product has been proven superior by a number of different uh, you know decades. So instead of having this black and white debate that politicians usually do to get votes, the younger generation understand that the technology and data are where the facts remain. And this has become more important because 
if I were talking about world coming to an end 20 years ago in a street corner and saying that tomorrow the world ends, maybe 15 people will walk by and maybe one of them may believe me. But today, I, ha- I can have that message. I can put it on YouTube or TikTok. And instead of 15 people walking by, I had 15 million people could see it. And then maybe, maybe a million people or maybe a thousand people will believe it. So what happened is we have super amplified the process of methods of distribution and democratized access to uh, creation. Anyone can create and anyone can distribute. So what happens is that while that creates opportunity for opinions and even lies and fake news to go all over the world in a matter of seconds, the ability to understand what the reality is is not scaled up with it. And that is important because if someone says that the world is ending tomorrow and I saw it on WhatsApp, there is no way today for me to wait for New York Times tomorrow to come and then read that news because I, I used to trust that New York Times is printed once a day and hopefully the people who are printing are good journalists and editors and publishers and I trust them or six o'clock news in the evening. So there was a checkpoint between 24 hours morning newspaper or evening news and uh, and people will have time to sit down and assess and reassess before they print. Today even New York Times is uh, trying to get, uh, you know, every second there is a tweet coming out from them, right? So there is a gap between where uh, the veracity of news is actually assessed and who's responsible for it. Younger generation, I do think, will have an opportunity to redefine that. Because every time we create a problem, we solve it. And every problem wants to be solved. We are creating this problem of super amplifying uh, anything that people want to share. I think the next wave of this would be accumulating all of that and figuring out a system just like the old days of newspaper. And I think that is the missing piece today. And I do think that this new generation coming in will figure out a technology-driven solution that will scale with the method of uh, distribution as well. And that will change the game. As a last thought then, if an organization's sitting there and data is concerning them, at what point do you think talking to ThoughtSpot might help them out? I think uh, there are three things that uh, I would like to tell organizations. When I talk to my customers, I'll tell them, number one, if your leaders are not fully data-driven, you need to figure out how to get new leaders. What I mean by that is uh, uh, not everyone speaks SQL or data warehouse or databases. But your customers are looking for you to understand how you're using the data to drive meaningful actions for them. And it all starts with leadership. A product like ThoughtSpot, we started with the idea of making the world more fact-driven. And the way we do that is by abstracting out all the complexity. For example, we can use the natural language intent you have and then turn that into an action for you. So for example, if I'm responsible for my customer satisfaction, the system will understand that if there is a large customer who's unhappy, it'll come to you and nudge you to say, you need to pay attention to this customer. This customer is unhappy, and it is unhappy because we think because of you know, reason A, and we think these are the two or three things that you should do. Imagine that, that is, what happened? why it happened, and how you can fix it. All three 
are coming out of data. That's one thing that ThoughtSpot does, number one. Number two, don't limit data-driven insights and action to the boardroom or the exit council. Make sure that the first point of contact, that is the business user who's responsible for greeting your customers as they walk into a store or um, uh, a customer support agent who's talking to your customer in, in person, they are data-driven in the sense that their fear of data is also removed. There again, ThoughtSpot, what we do is we create data applications that are built with AI-driven insights driving their actions. So this customer you're speaking to, she has a young child, and you don't want to put her on wait for 15 minutes in the evening, as an example. You know, that small act could change that customer's perception of what sort of company is this. They understood that I have a small baby, and I don't want to be on phone with 15 minutes. That's an important point. That's the second one. So infuse the front line. And third is build a modern cloud stack. If you have been with IBM and Oracle and SAP and Tableau and Salesforce or for the last 20 years, okay, fantastic, good for you. But the world has changed. And you need to build a modern cloud-driven data stack. Use Google, use Amazon, use Snowflake, use ThoughtSpot. Build an event-driven, action-driven, on-demand, ad hoc, delightful experience, not for your external, just for external customers, but also for internal customers. So when I talk to customers, these are the three themes that we talk about. Uh, drive from the center, drive all the way to the edges, and make sure that it is coming out of a modern cloud platform. And, you know, we love uh, this business because this is not just a data business, it's an outcome business. We are talking to doctors about how they can f spend more time focusing on the patient as opposed to focusing on data entry. You know, we talk about supply chain specialists, we talk to merchandisers, we talk to marketers, we talk to customer support people. I love it because we get to work with different business and understand their purpose and then hopefully suggest solutions where ThoughtSpot is a part of it. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for spending some time with us. And it's lovely to catch up with you having seen you in Lisbon. Thank you, David. I appreciate you taking the time with me. I suppose I suppose there's, there's an element of what we were talking about here with... Um, data and making sure that data is verified here it's talking about making sure that data can be driven into something that's meaningful there's there's so much online um Sadesh talks about eight billion people walking around now many of them have got phones connected to the cloud connected to 4g 5g we are drowning in data and therefore on the one hand you've got meta saying right it's time to like make sure that businesses can verify because there's that much going around here's someone who's saying data the world needs to be more fact factual we need to be able to drive meaningful actions and he's talking about data insight knowledge action and i love the way he talks about this through the prism of football mm. I, I think um, I think you made a very good point, right? About also also being quite data centric in our decision making. Where hmm. you know it, it's, I mean, not only did he compare it to, to sports, but he he compared a lot to sort of general business, general you know day to day sort of life. Um, also, the the outlook on what data is. Uh, you know, there, there's a point in the interview where he talks about you know people just thought data was looking at large amounts of you know, sort of SQL or Excel spreadsheets and, and that was it. But leaving our sort of data imprint everywhere, um, you know, wherever we go, I mean, we laugh and joke about it, but 
that whole Instagram and meta thing. And if you want to get verified, I mean, that is your data out there, right? Um, if you mm. choose to sign up and whatnot, but you know, about the, the whole sort of using data to make decisions. I mean, even if we use that example in, in, in isolation, that's going to allow, you know, these sort of organizations, you know, in, in sort of Instagram, let's say, a huge amount of, of knowledge, right, on, you know, kind of where the businesses are, who the sort of target markets are, you know, who the sort of users are. Um, it's going to give them a lot of data-driven insight, I want to say. Well, yeah, I mean, he, talk, he talks about kind of delivering a bespoke um, experience, doesn't he? Mm, mm. Um, and that that business then gets you as a person, not as a number. If you do have a brand that you trust and you interact with more and therefore there is extra data that's generated if they can deliver a bespoke experience if you know your verification on whatever site allows them to kind of better understand who you are and therefore give you a tailored experience then there's value and you are not just a number yeah no exactly and i think the the, the product that they have is you know i mean it, it's almost um i mean if you go on their website i was having a stroll on their website before this but I think they've got written like it's your self-service analytics for your modern day data stack, right? And which <clears throat> it's a lot of words, but effectively it allows you to drill and pinpoint into, you know, the data that you need. And what does that do? I mean, again, like you said, it, it puts you, gives you a name rather than a number, right? Or, and, and that will allow organizations to effectively, build out services, build out products that will be tailored. And, and as a consumer, you're probably, you know, you're going to be better off with that. Um, you know, kind of the, the, the insights that these organizations will be using than, than not having it. I mean, if you look at some of the, the people that, you know, they're working with, um, they've got the big boys, right? I mean, I picked up one, Huel, which I know a mm -hmm. few people that use it. I have used it um, in the past. And, there's so many, you know, users across the world, users that use different ways of it. And for those who are listening, don't know, I mean, it's like a dietary supplement, meal supplement type um, product, but I'm sure they have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people that have signed up at some point and they're able to then kind of track, they're able to see, you know, spikes, flows, when sales went up, when sales went down, these sorts of things. And, and that is what's going to help a business when we look at like the landscape at the moment from an economy perspective, I mean, you know, people are looking at how to make cuts or, you know, where to kind of, um, you know, trim down the fat in your businesses and, and sort of, you know, make yourselves leaner. But with something like this, like ThoughtSpot and what he kind of spoke about, the insights that they allow you to get are going to help businesses kind of flurry and, and, you know, whatever's not broken, you know, don't try fixing it. Just keep, doing it i guess i like that he talks a lot about um some of the kind of the, the bigger challenges surrounding data um you know like ethics for example or job displacement and he talks about them as double-edged hmm. um i thought it was really kind of interesting to, to to have it through the the prism of um job displacement and obviously he talks about the idea that writing code doesn't give you job security anymore necessarily hmm. so where chat gdp is um is involved mm. but then he goes on to talk about japan having an aging population and needing services and needing a way of delivering those services and actually job displacement might provide a solution 
for some of that. And and then when you kind of think about China with its over one billion people and a rapidly aging population because of obviously the the cultural attitude towards um, mm. towards towards child um, birth mm. rates over there. Really interesting to to put it through that prism, and it's not typically how we think of it. Yeah, it's weird, right? I was actually having this conversation on the weekend um, with someone who... They, intellectual of you? Well, you know, uh, different, different, different to most weekends. But I was having a, a word with someone who owns, um, you know, like a, a software house, right? And and they they produce products for, for various clients. His biggest outsourcing sort of location was Kiev, right? Right, yeah. And... Again, we would talked about job displacement because of no fault of their own now. You know, he just can't get the workforce in Kiev because of the volatile, obviously, political situation and, and kind of the, the changes and the war with Russia. And he was basically saying how he's gone from, you know, having to pay, you know, kind of manageable um, sort of rates to people um, who were freelance kind of. You know, software engineers over in Kiev, where there was a good quality and understanding of technology, is very you know kind of mature sort of way of thinking and whatnot. And now he's had to find other locations in Europe and kind of South Asia um, to get this work done. So, you know, and again, you talk about sort of job displacement. I mean, that's I, I don't really think of it that way. Um, and that's obviously had a knock-on effect on on him. And he's just a you know a, a partnership business, right? But if you think at global businesses, that's going to be huge, right? Like the costs and stuff. Yeah. So um, I think just going back to the, to, to, to the point in the interview where it's about sort of, you know, um, the aging population in, 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 in um, was it China or Japan um, that you mentioned? Was it? Well, he mentions Japan, but he, Japan, also, he also yeah. references China. So, yeah. you know, it just goes to show that you will need, like I said, the, the, the need for different services will be different to the need of services or products in Ukraine, for example. And mm. how do you understand that as a business or as people? It's it's from that data, which is driven out, right, um, of the products. So, yeah. Well, um, there are some great examples at the end as well about why business might think about ThoughtSpot. Uh, take another listen if you missed some of that insight at the very end. But we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about flying cars here at tech talks we're very lucky to have a lot of content and sometimes we're not entirely sure what to do with it for example when we go to a conference we will quite regularly meet 15 or 20 people and not know how to get them all on the show so we've created something new tech talks extra for those snippets from conference floors or from one-off events that we don't quite know how to fit into your regular Tuesday show. Tech Talks Extra is free. It's on a private RSS, so you do need to sign up for it and subscribe. But as I say, it's free, and all you need to do is hand over your email address, and in return, we'll give you instructions of how to access all of that additional content. To get instructions and to sign up to the show so you can play it on Apple and Google podcast players, all you need to do is go to www.nashsquared.com forward slash the hyphen hub forward slash tech hyphen talks hyphen extra hyphen sign up hyphen form alternatively have a look at the link in the show notes probably a bit of an easier way to do it don't miss out on all the bonus content that we've got from the likes of web summit unleash world or from any internal events that we're running 
Right, second part of the show. Um, our next guest is Martin Warner. He's CEO and founder of Flix Premier. He's chairman and founder of Autonomous Flight Limited. And he's a founder at the Entrepreneur Seminar. Seminar, rather. Um, got him on the show to talk about very much about the traits of entrepreneurship, um, which this is someone who has funded and produced films and you know basically started as a as an entrepreneur works in tech moved into movies now looking at autonomous flying cars and sorry whenever whenever anyone says flying vehicles to me akish two things spring to mind god blade runner yeah and and the fifth element yeah yeah seen both of them yeah there's there's also another um wasn't there like an Arnold Schwarzenegger one, which I can't remember? Maybe he, he flew a car for a little bit. Um, Quite possible. I can't remember. What those, those are the two in my head that like Blade Runner with the flying police vehicles yeah. and also kind of that old dystopian future. And then the fifth element with Bruce Willis driving his yellow cab in the sky. Yeah. Um, and there is an element of what Martin talks about here when, when you get into the, the interview, because he talks about trends looking ahead. So we've had we've had the first half of the show is talking about data mm-hmm. and how data can be meaningful for, for businesses. We, we have a bit of future gazing here from Martin, future futurology, mm-hmm. I think it is, mm-hmm. um, where he talks about ed tech, he talks a bit about film and streaming, and he also talks about flying vehicles Mm -hmm. and he talks not just in terms of delivery in amazon which is a bit that everyone kind of drones delivering yep parcels yep sure but the idea of of an uber service Mm. flying over london and you can't help but think it sounds kind of science fiction kind of cool is it really going to happen well interesting to listen to someone who's actually working on it that's true that's true but also at the same time did we think I mean, I'm I'm 31, right? When I was eight or 10 years old, did I think that we would get cars that would be driven without petrol? No. So, like, you know, back in those times when we talked about the the effect on the environment, we were talking about refrigerators and aerosol cans, and that apparently was that was apparently the reason why the ozone layer was getting, you know, pierced and thinner and all these sorts of things. But you know, if you think about it, the the I mean, do I think there'll be a, there'll be flying cars at some point? Absolutely. I mean, I may not be here, you know, um, to see it, but I'm sure that at some point there will be some sort of ways around it, or maybe in in locations where they can, I don't know, afford to do that and stuff. But I mean, yeah, it's a bit far fetched, I think personally, for the next five, ten years, maybe. I don't know. Listen to this. See where you think we're at. Certainly, we're, really interesting for an entrepreneurship as well. Yeah, we're, but we're, we're, what's going to happen? We're going to end up, you know, less pollution in in in, in the roads or on the roads, and you know, it's all going to be kicking off up top. Do you know what I mean? That's that's going to be kind. Sorry, well, yeah. If you make gas guzzling flying cars, I don't think that's the aim. Well, no, no. But also, it will just be like you know, trying to get an Uber at the moment from central London is is you know, you can't get one for for love or money, but. You know, imagine that. Like, oh, sorry. You know, the air, uh, the airwaves are a bit packed at the moment. You just got to wait. You know, ten, fifteen minutes for one for landing and all the. Oh God, it's going to be carnage. Yeah, but it made walking along the street much more pleasant. It would, yeah, yeah. I guess you could also cross whenever you want. So for our American listeners, you know, jaywalk as much as you want. But you know, <laughs> let's see. Today, I'm lucky to be joined by Martin Warner. Martin, you're the CEO and founder of Flix Premier, chairman and founder of an Autonomous Flight Limited and founder at Entrepreneur Seminar. So a serial entrepreneur and founder, 
Thank you for making some time to chat today. It's a pleasure. How are you, first of all? I'm doing great. I can't complain. I spend my time between London and New York. So I've just got back to the States, a little uh, jet lag, but I've got a lot of exciting things to work on. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing well, thank you. I imagine that we will, we will come to chat to what those exciting things are lined up. And I think it mainly has to do with Autonomous Flight Limited, right? Yeah, well, we're going through an exciting phase uh, for that particular venture, and that consumes a lot of my time. And uh, so we just you know, went out with a, a big announcement about what our uh, underlying uh, aircraft will look like and what the technologies will be, and that's going to be really exciting, not just in the industry, but for the consumer as well. Yeah, when you've got the opportunity to talk to someone who's who's successfully founded, sold businesses, uh, you know, obviously been successful to the point that you can finance um, film. And not everyone will have the opportunity to be an entrepreneur. And entrepreneurship is definitely a, a route where someone can make a real difference within an organization. Um, what are those traits? What do you think um, stand someone in good stead to be successful? And what perhaps could they work on? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's one that gets debated all the time. So whether you're in a corporation and what I would call a transitioning entrepreneur, so entrepreneur to entrepreneur, or you just have decided you want to go and set up your own small business, I think the traits are actually really similar. So I'll give you some of the key ones. I mean, depending on the methodology, we can go from 15 to 25 of them. But the top ones for me is a willingness to take risk and at the same time, accountability. So risk cannot be separated from accountability, but generally entrepreneurs, you know, the buck stops with them and they've got to be able to say, you know, I will believe above everyone else that I can get this done. And that passion will lead into uh, all kinds of leadership traits, but being a great leader will mean that you've got to be able to be your own advocate. And advocacy is another trait. So risk, you know, being willing to take risk, and being a great advocate for what you're doing, you won't see many successful entrepreneurs that uh, at least publicly, at least with their team or in the media or talking to investors, are not deeply passionate about what they do and are able to convince them to come on that journey with them. So whether that's uh, you're negotiating uh, supplier terms, uh, convincing people to come on board with their crazy um, you know, venture, perhaps they're going to do sweat equity instead of receive a salary or a reduced salary or convince investors to you know, follow uh, the journey and perhaps you know, compromise on their terms, which is very difficult for entrepreneurs to get, et cetera, et cetera. So advocacy is another important one. I think a, one that, a, a trait that often gets missed when I talk to other people, successful entrepreneurs, about the subject is you know, understanding the idea of generality. So being a rich generalist. So people, when we use the word rich in the wrong context, they think it means something about money. And it doesn't. It means the fabric of competency. So it, uh, the great entrepreneurs, whether they can articulate it, are generally people that know a fair bit about every subject. So I could sit here, I, I, it would be boring for you, but, but I'd be, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in any area, any function of business, but I can pretty much tell you about every function. And I can also tell you about how they link together with other functions and what decisions need to be made. Now, that's, it's a bit like asking someone with a blank piece of paper to write down their values. They, they have values, but everyone can articulate them as clearly as you might want. It's the same with this subject about being a rich generalist. And essentially, that's an incredible trait. If you've got the curiosity to learn about business and understand, again, whether you go back to first principles or enough about how the different functions work, you're going to be 
a better entrepreneur. And then the fourth one is ambition versus reality. So being a realist is different to being someone that's capable of taking risk because we can computationally take risk and say, you know what, I did, I did the numbers, I, I feel good. But actually, we need a, a strong reality check. We need to be grounded in reality, whether that's product selection, whether that's looking at uh, human emotion and sentiment and understanding how far you can push a team, whether that be ultimately not taking too much money too quickly or deciding that you've got a realistic view on what that risk level is and I'm going to take the money uh, because it's the right amount of terms and I'm going to still be able to perform at the same level. All these different things come back to this trait of realism. And again, I, I'll stop there. I think those are... Uh, Interesting traits that, that I think people pick out the risk one. I think people can often see advocacy, but the other two, uh, they, they, realism and, 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 and being a rich, generous are not often talked about. And then they be, the traits become more, more traditional. And by the way, as I said, um, they became very, uh, uh present in my life, uh, when I served at JP Morgan. Um, and I was, I was known by all, all the management, including the CEO as a fast rising star who was an entrepreneur. And they were wary of me because I was so strong with my entrepreneurial traits, even though, by the way, large corporations uh, teach you know, you know, the internal functions to run themselves like business. And they want to create a leadership competitive structure where they are all individual entrepreneurs. And it's a management play to motivate people to take risk. The reality is they can only take as much risk as the corporation wants them to. But they're very much aware of creating entrepreneurs. You you talked about risk there um and you mentioned very early on that the risk level was different between an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur is that because the book doesn't have to stop with the entrepreneur or is that too um is that too easy a, a kind of a dynamic to to view it through no i think in this instance it's exactly right I mean, you've got constraints of, of, a, of a company, and depending how big that company, the levels just increase, right? From you know, accountability with shareholders right the way through to, particularly if it's publicly traded, to uh, the analyst community and creating confidence down through the management team, down through whatever the policies are at the time. If it was in banking, every month they were cutting people, or at least it felt that way. Let's say every quarter there was some kind of cull of, of people. So you have all these policies that restrict what you could do, but every will give you a broader mandate and then of course the employee will push that mandate if they're ambitious if they're willing to take risk and if they've been given a creative mandate sometimes those lines are blurred uh, for me uh, whilst i always try to act in the interest of the company for sure um but i pushed i pushed heavily and that that's a different level of accountability and risk to what i would take if i was on the outside using my money or money that i was in complete control of Versus in the company. How, how do you think you go about building a mandate then? If you are someone in an organisation who feels that they can make a difference to it, is really bought in and passionate about that organisation and wants to help them, how do you how do you get yourself into a position where you are given mandate or a mandate and 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 have the ability to make those changes? Good question. Because I guess I'm going to answer it the way I immediately respond. Because I think you can interpret this question in a few ways. I mean, if we're talking about how do we succeed, that's very broad. Now, narrow it down to uh, how do people believe in us because they've got to believe before we can succeed. And then down to, well, what is it that makes someone believe in us? And now we're three levels down. That's where we start. Everyone, everyone you know, listening to this podcast, whether they're working for someone else or working for themselves, has to convince someone down the chain that they've got a competency or an idea matched with a competency that can make them successful. 
whether it's bringing on other people or not. So we've got to essentially originate or position ourselves in a place to use our competency or originate the idea that we can bring the competency to. And, and, and this is where, you know, we develop our specialism. Some of us are cross-function. Some of us become deep about one subject. Like you're, you've done a bunch of things yourselves. Maybe you're in recruiting and you know, now you're, you're everything about podcasts and interviewing. You know, whatever it is, we have to have something that we're competent at. And if we're good or if we're exceptional or just maybe lucky, we're fortunate to create the idea. And then we've got to be able to convince people. Now, I'll argue that even if you're not a good, I'll make the case at least here, that even if you're not a good salesperson, if you have the right idea and the right competency, and let's argue you're not destructive or you're you're not a jerk, right? Then generally, good ideas don't go unnoticed. There's politics and other things that get in the way, but generally that separate the the, the less likely uh, options that can that can occur in organizations like people stealing your job or competing and covering their ass and whatever but you've just got a good idea and you've got a good competency you're likely to find endorsement so become good at something and look for those opportunities and i i i see um you know opportunities in kind of a, a, a three dimensions and one of them is that i'm always looking at how do i broaden my skill set not to jump I've jumped many times in my career, but I've also been successful. I do not recommend it to anyone because those risks and the crocodiles in the river uh, are, are there every time. And you can avoid it by just radiating off your skill set, looking to broaden your skill set. That's one thing. The second thing is I look at my environment and I look at whether it's changing. Where is it changing to? What is it actually doing? And how can I participate in that? And the third thing is I didn't do this as a kid because I didn't understand it. You know, I have a hyperactive uh, brain. I, when I was young, I had a speech impediment. Uh, I was pretty. Uh, I, I was a low. I wouldn't call myself a complete loner, but but I struggled when I was young, and I saw everything as skills. And I didn't really understand people as well. When I got to my twenties, I understood how valuable people were, and I realised that it was just you know the way I'd grown up. But actually, the, the third bit I look for is how do I involve people. What does it mean to involve people? And that's the prism in which I I, I view opportunities. So look, we've talked a lot about entrepreneurship. I'm kind of conscious of time. Um, Where do you think the market's heading, especially in the areas that you're involved? Because, you know, you are someone that's been able to predict, uh, you know, with the likes of 3D printing and so on, where where the market's going and take advantage of that. Um, Where do you think people should be paying attention as we begin to... uh, well, make far, fairly rapid progress through this year. So I mean, the first thing I'd say is that being a futurist and I spent most of my life looking at the, the, the future, um, and I started that back in venture capital. It gave me uh, a skill set to, to look at that. Now, the problem is I didn't always benefit from it. I didn't, my money didn't always follow it. Um, but but you'll, you'll notice everything I'm doing is leaning forward three to five years and with autonomous flight, a 10 year horizon, which was my most uh, ambitious horizon. Uh, so I'll quickly answer the um, uh, let, let's say I'll, I'll give you a real easy short term one, which is the online uh, education business. And I think that uh, in, in that area, I focused on entrepreneurship and even in a down market and we're probably going to go into what I'd call a soft recession. That's my own personal prediction. We can. We could have you know conversation about that another time, but but in in that in the online education business there are people that can't afford education and there are people that want to transform their life because they have pause for thought because they see uncertainty they see like in the tech industry a lot of sell offs 
uh, of stock, uh, uh, consumer, sluggish consumer demand, and now there's a lot of layoffs, right? In fact, I think Apple uh, claimed that the only company right now of the big six that, uh, that are not laid off people yet. Online education, if you've got something where people feel they can transform uh, their life, transform their skill set, um, you know, make a difference to their career, and you've got the, the, the quality to be able to share those insights, then you know, an online business, given the low overhead, this is gonna this is gonna continue, and it's already particularly in the personal uh, development space. There's a lot of charlatans, if I'm honest, particularly in social media, where it's so easy to claim that you can sell a skill set, but there's a lot of personal development and stuff around realizing your own life and manifesting your own beliefs and all that kind of stuff. But I think around core skill sets and online education, it it, it it's going to continue to grow. In my film business. You know, we're seeing streaming. It feels like streaming's here and been here a long time. But we've been looking for ways to create a community around streaming. So things like an NFT marketplace, stores, getting people closer engaged to the content. So it might well be that you love a film, you love an actor, and you want to buy some particular film skills, or you might want to buy the rights to a script, or you might want to buy some other form of merchandising, or, or, or tickets to a particular event like Comic-Con, etc., etc., etc. So NFTs are coming back with a force and they're going to become industrial focused. So the media industry, think of Disney, think of Magic Kingdom, think of all the physical store stuff. Uh, the digitization of stores in, within streaming is, is just one of the most cutting edge areas, as well as the fact that we don't need uh, physical uh, film festivals, even though the big ones like Cannes, Berlinale, uh, Sundance will continue. But actually, Netflix, De Disney, we've just built our own capability you're going to see a lot more ability to watch films through a festival format online. So there's a lot of things in what we call offline programming, not directly focused on streaming a movie, that are coming to, to streaming in terms of building a community. And then the, the bigger one, I, I guess the focus around uh, you know, a, a tech trend that, that everyone's going to follow because it's getting closer to being interesting at the end consumer level is eVTOL uh, aircraft. And this kind of splits itself into two areas at the moment. It splits itself into companies are saying, can you imagine something different to a train, a coach, or a car? Or let's say a bike if you're in London because the season bikes are going everywhere now, particularly rental bikes. But now all of a sudden, it feels a little bit like the Jetsons. Forgive my American side coming up. But you know this idea that you'd go to some kind of vertiport, or let's just call it a helipad, and you'd get on something that looks a little bit like something out of Batman, and it would have five or six seats and it would take you maybe only five, six miles, 12 minute journey from maybe Charing Cross to Heathrow or, or JFK to Manhattan, etc. And and this is truly, you know, really exciting because the technologies are exciting. The cost of that kind of travel is exciting. And perhaps one day in the near future, certainly in the next few years, people for the for the cost of a high end Uber fare can see London or Paris or New York from perhaps 1,500 to 2,000 uh, feet high. And there's a beauty about being in the sky. And there's a stability and a level of redundancy that I think that can be built into these aircraft that make them as safe, if not safer, than, than helicopters. So I think that's, that becomes really exciting. The other side is that the press are continuing to follow whether we can get Amazon and Google, Walmart, Microsoft, DHL into the business of delivering parcels same day within 30 minutes to your door, either to the front of your uh, front door or, uh, or into your back garden. And this has all kinds of challenges, but this is also a reality. 
and interim testing licenses have been granted by the CAA and the FAA in, here in America. And you know, I'm closely focused on that as well. Both sides are, are, are really exciting. And particularly on the passenger side, um, there's a lot of regulation and red tape to get through. Uh, but we believe we've been able, to, through our latest patents, our next iteration of our design, we believe the actual passenger aircraft, the eVTOL aircraft at my company, Autonomous Flight, our aircraft is called the Y6S Plus. Uh, it's because it's a wireframe. Uh, essentially, there are six main uh, motors and, and, and props. And essentially, we believe we can uh, dramatically reduce the cost of entry of those aircraft and therefore get to an economic price to the consumer. Um, and, and we think that's going to be huge. We also think we can attack the noise level of these aircraft because we're flying at low altitude to a point where it's now not going to be a consideration. And we think we've made a dramatic improvement in battery technology. To name just a few of the improvements that we think are going to make a reality and more important, quicker certification of the aircraft. Building this aircraft is, is not the challenge. Certifying it and testing it is the challenge. The technologies and the applications are pretty much known in this space, but it's this journey of getting to the point uh, where we can mass produce something that is certified and safe for the public. We've probably reached the limit of our of our time today. There's a huge amount of interesting stuff in there for us to, to pick over. So I really want to, first of all, thank you for giving up some time this morning because it is still kind of mid-morning in the States as we're talking to you. Um, but great insight yeah. around traits on, on entrepreneurship and some really interesting trends to look forward to in, in the market. So thanks for your time. My pleasure and any time. <laughs>